three, two, one. Thanks for joining us on Kentucky Caliber. This week we're going to be talking about mass shootings in the United States. When we did the show last week on Memorial Day, everything had already been uh, recorded and edited and, and posted for launch before the uh, the information about the uh, the Texas shooting was known. So ha had we known beforehand or ha had that happened a little bit later, we would have chosen that as a topic for the show uh, last week. But uh, since we didn't, wanted to catch up and, and do that this week. Um, there's a really good book on the topic of mass shootings, and even though it was published in 2021, it's still a very timely, uh, a timely book for folks that are looking for, you know, some perspective and some information on why these things keep happening uh, with more frequency. The book is called The Violence Project, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. And it's written by a couple of, of PhDs, one who is a uh, psychologist and the other a sociologist slash criminologist. So it's, it's in their, their field of study. And they put together a pretty good body of research on mass shootings in America. And what I wanted to talk about at first just briefly is the, the data that they have uh, compiled and what we can learn from it, uh, which is really good, uh, and also the limitations of their work, which is pretty much the case for any type of social science when you're when you're trying to explain a behavior uh, as in why is someone doing something and it's always difficult to really determine uh, motive and that's that but they still do a good job of addressing that uh, in their book so one of the most interesting findings from the violence project and this is you can this is in the introduction is just some of the basic data on mass shootings as a whole and one of the things they point out is that these types of events are becoming not only more frequent, but they're also getting deadlier. So they're happening more often, and when each attack happens, they result in more fatalities than they used to. So in other words, where, where previous years a mass shooting might have killed six or seven people, or maybe 10 or 11, now it's you know, 15 or 20 or more. So the frequency is increasing and the, the deadly, they're more deadly than they used to be. They go on to point out that more than half of all mass shootings in American history that, that we record have occurred since the year 2000. That's the last 22 years. One third have occurred since 2010. So if you put it on a graph, it would look like it wouldn't look like a line at all. It would be a logarithmic jump where there's a, a point, a little bit of an increase, then a big increase, then an even bigger increase. Um, almost like, uh, in some ways, the way um, some viruses spread, where you see the curve all of a sudden take a really sharp turn upwards. So if you if you imagine that as the uh, the graphic for mass shootings, that's sort of what the chart would look like. It will be tracking along for a little while, and then all of a sudden, at 2000, and especially since 2010, the curve just takes a huge jump upwards and becomes really steep. The deadliest year was uh, 2018 with nine nine mass shootings, and so 2017 and 2019 had seven each. Now, there's there's different ways that people define what a mass shooting is, what constitutes a mass shooting. The FBI 
uses the uh, definition of a, a public shooting, and that's an important definition, public shooting that, incur that, that results in four or more deaths, not including the shooter. So they, that distinguishes, uh, and the reason they, they put in public place, that distinguishes it from something that took place in a private residence uh, or home where there was um, a personal relationship um, to, for, between the person who was doing the killing and their victims. That's not the case in public shootings where there is no direct connection. So there, it isn't relatives or, or someone that was personally known to the shooter. So that's a big difference. And, and four more, uh, which is still the definition that the, uh, the authors use in the violence project. And so they, they go on to, to cite the different cities that they've taken place in, uh, San, Bernardino, San Bernardino, Orlando, Las Vegas, uh, Sutherland Springs, Parkland, Virginia Beach, El Paso, and of course Buffalo just a couple of weeks ago, and then and then Uvalde in Texas uh, this week, and so the the toll keeps going up in terms of how many people die in each incident or each attack, um, and and how often that they are they are occurring, and so they identify the authors do some some common factors between. Uh, folks who carry out these shootings and they did that not only by conducting research they actually talked to some of uh, uh, mass shooters who were still alive and were willing to be interviewed in, in prison uh, they don't name those individuals and they do that for a couple of reasons mainly because they don't want to be perceived as giving them publicity and they don't want to give them publicity anyway so they don't use the names uh, anywhere in their work uh, of the individuals that they interviewed who were mass shooters. They just refer to them as subject A, subject B, or subject C, things like that. Um, and that's, that's included in the body of their research. But they identify some common factors that, that people who committed mass shootings have. And one of them is early trauma uh, in childhood. That can be abuse or something like that. Uh, another is a more immediate trigger later in life, like uh, they lost a job or an important relationship uh, was, you know, like they broke up with their significant other or they got divorced, uh, something like that. And then a third factor is easy access to firearms, um, which is why they talk a little bit about the gun control issue in their book, although that's, that's not the focus of their book at all. They just mention it uh, because it's related to the topic that they're that they're covering. So it's, it's really good that uh, they put together a body of research like this that can identify, you know, just the data and, and some common factors amongst people who, who carry these attacks out. The limitation of that research, though, is still pretty big. And here's why. Because if you look at those common factors, you know, someone who suffered some type of trauma or abuse early in their life, later in life had a, uh, a trigger event like a losing a job or ending of a relationship, easy access to firearms. Well, there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who, who have those factors in common, yet they don't commit mass shootings. So, and, and this is something that the FBI has done a good job of, of explaining in, in some of their research into uh, serial killers and mass murderers, uh, not in terms of a single event in, in shooting, just in terms of folks who, who committed a lot of murders over the course of their lifetime, one at a time, um, what they found was that these individuals did suffer from, ha had common factors like the researchers in this book argue, 
But what distinguished the killers wasn't their, the trauma that they suffered, because lots of people suffered that kind of trauma. What, what was unique about the serial killers was their response to that trauma. And so, in other words, they, they experienced something that a lot of people have, but their reaction to it was radically different from the normal body of, of people out there who have been through similar trauma. And what that means is we don't know why their reaction was so radically different than, than everyone else's, which means ultimately at the end of the day, we don't know why mass shooters do what they do. No one can tell you exactly why they chose to do or carry out an attack at a certain location on a certain day or why they decided to do it at all. It, it's simply an unknown. So we can, we can gather these common factors and try to look for warning signs but lots of people who have those same same warning signs or same factors never never even think of or carry out um, a mass shooting. So at the end of the day, you know, social science can only take us so far. And as to the reason why these attacks are done by the individual perpetrators, that is still an unknown. But the research did do a good job of shedding light on another dimension of mass shootings, and that is that of those that they chronicled. Uh, or that they cataloged, 40% of the mass shooters died by their own hand during the shooting. So they committed suicide after they had committed, carried out their shooting. Another 20% were killed by law enforcement officers, and most of those had made it clear in messages that were previously, that were found after they were dead, most of those made it clear that that was an outcome that they wanted to happen. Uh, one shooter, and this was from many years ago, I, the example that they cited is they asked one of them, why did you choose to attack a, a public place like a school in, in that case? And they said, because I knew if I did that, I knew for a fact that the police would, would kill me. So they, they wanted su what we call suicide by cop. Um, so we, when we think of these as mass shootings, they are, but they're also suicides. So in a private residence where you may have a murder-suicide in a public place, you have mass murder-suicide because the gunmen in many of these cases, after they had committed their shooting, they had planned to not survive themselves either by shooting themselves or by, uh, by being killed by the police, and that was, that was part of their plan. So that means that, that most of these folks, when they do these, they plan to die. They didn't plan to survive the attack. They, they plan to die. The military has had some experience with a similar phenomenon. It's, it's, there are very different circumstances and very different particulars. But we've had some experience with this in the past 20 years in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places where you confront a security threat where the attacker intends to die uh, either during or right after the attack. So the, the, their own death is part, of, is part of their plan. And what we learn from that is that Generally speaking, normal security measures aren't very effective or aren't as effective at stopping an attacker that plans to die. Many of our, our security measures that we can put in place, whether it's the presence of armed guards or barriers that we put up, like uh, not just locked doors, but also uh, in, in the case of the military, you know, you have you know barbed wire or other other barriers. They, they create, they do two things. They, they create first a physical barrier to the perpetrator or attacker, and they second, they create a psychological barrier for the attacker, but to make them think that they have no chance of success. But those types of, especially the psychological barrier, 
that's based on the type of thinking that you know we assume we make an assumption we assume that a normal person wants to live they want to survive so they don't want to die which is why the thinking is these psychological barriers will work they'll deter someone from carrying out an attack where they don't think they will they will survive well that assumption doesn't work for an attacker who wants to die if it's part of their plan that they not survive the attack then the psychological barriers that you put in place to deter them will not work. And we've seen that time and time again uh, in, in, the, in the military installations that are forward operating bases and combat outposts and other places uh, around the world that when an attacker wants to die, that they can't be deterred. Uh, you can still kill them, and that, in fact, does happen and has happened many times when they attacked our bases uh, in the field, but you still didn't deter the attack from taking place. So you didn't scare them into not attacking. They went ahead and carried it out anyway. And even under, even with heavily armed uh, military personnel visible and guarding perimeters, it was still possible in some cases for, for suicide bombers and other attackers to cause, to inflict damage and casualties on our bases. So what I'm saying is that the, you have to understand that there, re, there comes a point where no amount of security can ever be 100% effective. So you, you, can, you can lock schools down and you can put up barbed wire and you can put up armed guards. Um, and even that is still not going to deter 100% of those who want to carry out these kind of attacks. And it may not be able to stop all of them. And, and we know that. But we also, at the same time, learned something else uh, during the war on terrorism. And, and what we learned was that if you have a population that you're talking about, whether it's in a, in a town in the United States or a community somewhere else in Afghanistan or Iraq, it doesn't matter. Whatever the, the population is that you're looking at, if there are circumstances or factors that affect that entire population that are conducive to generating more attackers, then what you have is a situation where you can continually keep increasing security but if you don't do anything about the underlying factors, it means at the same time you're increasing your security measures, the society is also increasing its output of attackers. And so you're kind of in a losing situation. And that's, I think, another thing that this book does a good job of, of talking about is that the underlying, you know, the underlying factors that convinces attackers to carry out a mass shooting, um, if those are addressed, then you can at least in theory, prevent future shootings, mass shootings from occurring. And the military reached a similar conclusion, excuse me, in the, uh, in the war on terrorism, that if you address and deal with the underlying factors that are generating suicide attackers in a population, you can decrease the number of those attacks that take place because you've convinced those who might have been attracted to the idea that there was a bet they had a better option or that they should do something else. And, and so we've seen in other places that that can be a successful strategy where we were effectively able to employ those, those types of strategies. And, it, and there's a lot of different ways we tried to do it, whether it was by increasing aid and assistance or helping to improve the availability of jobs and, and opportunities. Or, you know, there's many other factors like that that throughout the entire population had the effect of decreasing the number of individuals who wanted to become suicide bombers or join a terrorist organization. So when you dealt with those underlying factors, we saw a decrease 
in the, both the recruitment and the uh, actual a- application of those type of attacks. And so what that means is if you can deal with the underlying factors that are contributing to these things, and, and when I say contribute, I mean that specifically because I'm not suggesting that individuals are not responsible for their actions. They are. They are responsible for their actions. But individuals are still influenced by other factors which lead them to make a certain decision or to take a specific action or not to take that action. So there are factors out there that contribute to people wanting to undertake a mass shooting or not. And those underlying factors are some of the things that we have a little control over. We can't control all of them. Um, We can't go back and undo a trauma that someone faced. We can't undo the fact that someone was, you know, fired from their job and, and then they felt angry enough about it that they wanted to attack their employer. And, and by the way, that's another style of attack that we have seen uh, in the workplace is the individuals who attacked a certain place of business had been let go by that employer and were, were angry. So that was their motive um, for carrying out the mass shootings in the workplace. Schools are a little different, um, though they point out that in the case of uh, the Texas shooting and others, the attacker had some connection to, they'd either been a student at that school recently or they, they still were. So and in this case, the shooter did in fact have that, as far as I know, they used to be a student in that school system. So this was familiar ground to them um, in the fact that they'd, they'd been at that, um, that school before, so they knew it. And that probably contributed, and I say probably because I'm speculating, as we all are, uh, with, with this early in the uh, aftermath of the, uh, the Texas shooting. With the Buffalo case, you know, the sh- you have a shooter who left behind a manifesto um, explaining why, what their motives were and, and why they wanted to carry out um, this style of attack. And in, that, and in the Buffalo case, it was almost entirely racially motivated, and that's why the, the shooter targeted a... Uh, a store, a grocery store that had a high percentage of African American uh, people there, because that's who the shooter wanted to target. So, in some cases, we have um, a, a written message that tells us what they, what their motives were, um, and so it's a little easier to determine, you know, why why they did it. In the case of the Texas shooting, where the shooter is killed, and where there's not a whole lot of direct, he did leave behind some social media messages that he'd been threatening. Uh, to make an attack like this before. And that's a key point uh, for folks that just, for those of us who just wonder, what the heck can we do about this? Well, the warning signs are often visible, and they're often visible on social media. A lot of these individuals either post comments um, about that they want to make an attack or that they're going to carry out an attack. And so the question, you know, for us becomes then, you know, how do you know the difference between someone who's just talking either because they want to sound tough, they're looking for attention, I mean, who knows, but they're just talking. How do you know the difference between someone who's just who's just posting comments to be posting comments versus someone who's really telling you, I'm getting ready to do this? Um, and, and that's a difficult thing. Even professional analysts get it wrong sometimes because there really is no way to know for 100% certain why someone is saying what they're saying and if they really mean it or if they're just they're just saying it. And, you know, the tech companies have tried to put rules in place and algorithms in place to identify these type of, of comments and remove them from social media. They have people that are hired to, to try to watch 
uh, the platforms, but there's there's just so many people using the platforms, and there's so many comments in, made on a daily basis that it's just impossible uh, to to monitor all of them because there's so many. There's just not enough people, and the algorithms, as you've all known, who use social media, they get they get it wrong too. Sometimes you'll get banned for a, a comment that has absolutely no uh, malice whatsoever. It, it may even be a joke. Uh, but the but the algorithm flags it, and then you're in you're in Facebook jail for a few days, right? <laughs> so you can't do anything about it until that uh, time is up. So, but the the difference is, you know, someone who's just stating an opinion about, well, I don't like this group of people, or I don't like that group of people. That's an opinion. It it may be a horrible, you know, distasteful, or dis- disgusting opinion, uh, and many times they are. But it's just an opinion. So they're they're not. Uh, that's just someone letting the world know what they think as opposed to an individual who says I'm getting ready to carry out an attack tomorrow at X location with Y weapon that's very specific so for me the thing I would look for is specificity when someone is is posting comments or making statements that they plan to carry out an attack not that they think an attack would be a good idea they are planning to carry one out and they provide details like what kind of target or what kind of weapon, uh, and that they're thinking about doing this. Those are the types of specific comments that are worthy of bringing to the attention of law enforcement, not just the social media platform. So for, for, for friends or families, or even if you hear a stranger out there who, who makes very specific threats, that's different from just opinions being stated. I would look for... Um, very, those type of specific details and intent that are being displayed uh, as opposed to someone who just says distasteful or disgusting things uh, because they, they want to, uh, for whatever reason, they want to say that. So that's, that's something that we can do to try, and I emphasize try. It's, it's, there's no way we can probably stop all of them. But if you identified, if we had more people that knew how to look for the specifics of, of a credible threat and identify those, it might help in uh, reducing the likelihood that that person gets away with it by bringing that to the attention of, of local law enforcement, wherever that person lived. Another big, of course, when we talk about prevention, a perennial favorite in the uh, peren- uh, political arena for the United States anyway, is can we restrict access to firearms or certain types? And the reason why that argument gets made is not because there is an effort to take people's guns away. Um, that's actually never happened in the United States, and no one's even uh, proposed it. There have been restrictions. There have been regulations. In 1994, there was a federal assault weapons ban. That lasted for 10 years. And if you'll notice, when I go back to the earlier part of the show, when I talked about how in the last 20 years, these things have really, mass shootings have really increased, they decreased just before that during the time that the federal uh, assault weapons ban was in effect. So during those 10 years, we saw a decrease in the number of mass shootings. They didn't go to zero. So no one, anyone that tells you that a, a law is just going to stop all these from happening, I don't think has the facts on their side. But laws can decrease the number of shootings. We've already seen that. We know that that, that can work. Not just here in the United States. We've seen it in other countries, too. Australia is a really good example. After they had a, a, a mass shooting in the late 1990s, I want to say, I can't remember the exact year. It was 90, I think it was 95 or 96, somewhere in there. There was a, a pretty a pretty terrible mass shooting. I mean, they're all terrible, but this one was, was for Australia, was a novelty. 
And uh, I think somewhere around 35 people were, were killed and many more were wounded by a single shooter. And so Australia decided that they were going to get serious about um, banning certain types of weapons and even confiscating others nationwide, which they did with the support of their government and most of the population. And consequently, the numbers of, of mass shootings plummeted. Also, so did the number of, of homicides and the number of suicides drastically decreased uh, after that in Australia. I'm not advocating that we do something like that here because we can't. The Second Amendment will not, pr not permit that. If folks want to have a discussion about changing the Second Amendment, there's a proper way to do that through a constitutional convention or adding a, a new amendment to repeal it or to change the wording of, of the amendment as it exists. But as it's currently written, you can't do that here in the United States. That's, that's the Constitution will not allow it. And folks who make the argument that gun rights are being are in, are in danger because of uh, of things like assault weapons bans are really engaging in uh, part hyperbole and part deception. Um, no one's being prohibited from buying firearms. No one's having firearms taken away from them after they've bought them. I mean, unless they're a convicted felon and you're not allowed to have firearms. Um, what the what the bans do is prohibit the purchase and access to certain types of weapons, specifically those that are modeled on military assault rifles. The ones that civilians can buy here in the United States, they're called assault-style weapons because they are imitations of what the military has. We, what we got in the military were fully automatic assault weapons. That's not available in the United States commercially. I mean, you can convert them to full auto, which is illegal. Uh, it's not that hard to do, but what you can buy on the commercial market are weapons that are designed to imitate both in appearance and in function military uh, style assault rifles. In the military we have those for one reason. There's one reason why we have those and that is to enable a single soldier to inflict mass casualties on an enemy. So if one person, one soldier was outnumbered by you know a dozen enemy troops that weapon would theoretically enable them to kill all the enemy troops just by themselves. That's, that's the purpose of assault rifles. And so when, when the civilian firearms manufacturers made imitations of these, they put on the commercial market weapons that have a similar capability, not the exact capability, but a similar capability. It enables one shooter to very quickly inflict mass casualties on a lot of different uh, people that are within their, within their sight. And we've seen that, in the, that was the case in the Texas shooting, that was the case in the Buffalo shooting, it was the case in the Las Vegas shooting, and many others that commercially available weapons imitate the military function close enough that they can give the shooter the capability to inflict mass casualties. And so that's why banning those types of weapons helped decrease the total number that the United States saw from 1994 to 2004, the law was not renewed. It wasn't repealed either. Lawmakers just let it expire. Um, it had a sunset provision under the original uh, the original legislation, and they they just let it uh, they let it lapse instead of renewing it. And so we've seen that that can make a difference. Whether or not that will happen, I, I seriously doubt. Congress, we do this every single time. There's there's one of these shootings, which unfortunately, as we know, is more frequently, and there's more frequent arguments about it. The same arguments get trotted out by the proponents and the and the opponents, and in the end, nothing happens. And so, I would strongly ex expect the same thing in this case that nothing will happen from a perspective of national legislation. I don't expect anything to get done 
by Congress, and I don't expect the states to do anything either. Um, but that's only limited to, to gun legislation. That's only limited to bans on assault-style weapons um, that can be purchased commercially uh, in the United States. That doesn't address the underlying factors that contribute to individual behavior. And that's an important topic because the frequency with which mass shootings happen is a uniquely American phenomenon. We lead the world in mass shootings, even if you adjust for population and, and demographics and income and, and number of firearms. If you adjust for all those other factors, when we, and, you, and you rank us next to other countries, we are far and away the world leader in mass shootings in public places. A lot of people want to counter that by, by bringing up examples of, of countries that are in active war zones. Um, I would argue that that's a very different phenomenon, that, that countries that are where there's a civil war, where there's ongoing combat, that's not the same thing as a, a shooter who just walks into a grocery store or a school and, and tries to kill as many people as they can. I don't think that's the same thing as a bomb falling on a, on a school or a store during uh, combat operations. I, I think those things are very different. And so it's unfortunate that we have many elected leaders today who not only don't know the answer to the question, why is this a uniquely American problem, but they duck, they duck the question. I mean, this, this came up, uh, and, and he's not the only one that does it, but, but Senator Ted Cruz is one example. I mean, he was asked by a British reporter why this is a uniquely American phenomenon, and he just pretended that he didn't hear the question or went on and talked about something else. Um, that's an old technique that, that politicians have. You know, if you don't get asked the question you want, answer the question you wish you'd been asked instead of the real one. And it's unfortunate when they do that uh, because it just ignores an important question. The, the person who asked that, the British reporter, wasn't trying to malign the United States. They weren't trying to slam America. They weren't trying to degrade or, or denigrate the United States in any way. He was just asking an honest question. This happens more often here than it does anywhere else in the world, so why do you think that is? And, of course, we did not get an answer from, from Senator Cruz, and we don't get an answer from that on, on most of our elected officials. And it's one thing to just say, I don't know. And I'll tell you the answer to, the, to my answer to that question is I don't know. I don't know why the United States leads the world in mass shootings. I have some ideas, which we're going to talk about here in a minute, but the, the fact is I don't know, and, and neither do our elected leaders. But at least it would be a sign of integrity if they just admitted that, and they just said, yes, we know it's a uniquely American problem, but we don't know why it is. Here's why I think it is, and maybe we could have a discussion that was beneficial to the country instead of just the, the continued uh, you know, talking points that they continue to recite um, over and over again ad nauseum uh, in, in hopes, I think, that nothing will change. So, so the question is, I think this is really the biggest question facing us is, you know, so why is, why do these things happen more often in the United States than anywhere else? What is it about the United States today and since 2000 that is, that is causing these mass shootings to increase with such frequency. So to answer the question of, you know, why is the United States unique in leading in mass shootings, we also have to, to look at some other categories that, are, that have been on the increase in the past couple of decades. Suicides have gone up. Drug use has gone up. Um, so there's, the, we don't normally think about these things as the same thing, but as I mentioned earlier, Many of the mass shooters intended to commit suicide either by them, their own hand or by you know suicide by cop during the attack. So those were in fact murder suicides, and in fact the most common type of death in the United States from firearms is suicide. 
uh, not homicide. Uh, more people die, die of suicide by guns in the United States every year than they do from, from homicide. And so at the same time, we've had huge amounts of increases in drug overdose, and many of those have, have lead to fatalities. So we've seen a, a big increase in the number of people who die from, from drug overdoses, and this increased even more after the pandemic and the lockdown restrictions that we, we put in place to pre prevent the spread of the, uh, the coronavirus. And, and what it tells you is that there's, there's overall an increase in, in violence writ large uh, in the United States. You know, we, every country has a history of violence because there's never been a human society that doesn't have some level of violence associated with it. Um, and, and ours is no different. We do have a lot of violence in our past, and we, we, we still have a lot of violence in our, in our present. And so, you know, the question becomes, you know, what's driving all of that? Why is that? And I think there's, there's a lot of factors, and, and some of the ones that drive people to, do, to use drugs or to commit suicide are the same factors that influence folks to undertake mass shootings, which is, uh, that, that's what the authors of the Violence Project call deaths of despair. And that's how they categorize many of the mass shooters as someone who had just stopped, you know, caring about their own life. Uh, they've stopped caring about the lives of others. They've given up on all hope and they've given up on, on ever being happy or ever finding anything meaningful or worthwhile to live for. And so that's, these are part of the, the deaths of despair. Uh, and that's the reason why they wanted to, to end their own life. And then you add to that anger at the world for being that way in their mind. Um, so they wanted to exact a degree of revenge on that world before they, they departed it themselves. And so, you know, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what, what can we do to try to improve things, uh, to try to decrease deaths of despair in the United States? And, and there's a lot of things that we can work on. Um, inequality and poverty and things that tend to increase the likelihood of individuals growing up in circumstances that will lead them to share one of the common factors that mass shooters have. If we can decrease those, then we have a shot at decreasing um, the, the frequency with which mass shootings are taking place. And again, I, I use the military example. We saw that abroad where we were able to better find a, a better solution to the root problems in, in certain populations. We saw decreases in folks who wanted to join terrorist organizations or carry out attacks on their behalf. We saw that the violence went down. So it does have, there are causal factors that contribute to these things that we can manage or work on to try to improve and decrease uh, mass shootings and the frequency of mass shootings here in the United States. And I, I think that we should do that. And we should pursue policies that may allow us to address those root problems. The, the root problems of, of depression and despair are often related to poverty and inequality and all of those, the social issues that, that from time to time come up in elections that we have a, a lot of problems with here in the United States. And those are the ones that we need to focus on in order to try to decrease the likelihood that, that these type of future incidents will attack. You know, I'm a parent, I have kids in school. So when, when, People talk about attacks on a school building. You know, we all worry that, you know, will our school be next? Even though, as an analyst, I know that the, the numbers, the likelihood is just astronomical that, that it will, will never happen. You still, uh, 
you don't talk about probability from an emotional level as, an, as a parent. You know, you're just thinking of the, the possibility. And so it's possible that could happen. And, you know, that's a very scary thought for folks. And so they, they, they naturally want to they want to put, you know, soldiers in every school and they want to put up barbed wire and they want or they want, you know, combat veterans like me and others out there standing on school grounds with a with a weapon every day. And I, I just would like to emphasize that I don't think that's a practical solution. I know I understand the emotional reasoning behind it. I do. But it's just it's not practical to put armed people at every single building everywhere in the country. I mean, there's over 130,000 schools alone, and some of them have several different buildings. So it it would just be impossible to do that. In, In the case of the Texas shooting, basic physical security procedures might have prevented this because there was an unlocked door that the perpetrator entered through. And we call this perimeter defense in the military. It's access, control, entry, denial in the civilian world. If you can keep the bad guys out of the building, it's really hard for them to do what they what they did, or very hard for them to do the type of attack that we saw uh, in, in Texas. You know, Buffalo, that's a different story. I mean, a grocery store is supposed to be open and inviting to the public. So, you know, access, control, entry, denial won't really work there. But it can work in places like schools and office buildings. Um, and I think that's that's where, and of course, the police response um, appears to be very in, in the Texas shooting. There's there's so many things wrong with that. Um, it, it's just I would like to wait until there's more information available to comment on that in any detail. But it certainly looks like that that they did not follow the training that is given uh, to law enforcement. They did not follow their own procedures. They did not follow their own standards. And I think that's why the DOJ is investigating them. And I hope that folks that that failed their it failed in their duty if that's if that indeed turned out to be the case which it sure looks like it but if that does turn out to be the the factual case then i hope they're held accountable uh for their actions for now all we can do is hope that their politicians will take some action and renew uh sensible gun legislation which we've seen in the past does have an impact it can decrease mass shootings it's not gun control it's not a ban it's not an infringement on the right to bear arms. The folks who say those things are wrong. That That's not what those types of legislation are. We know they work. We know they've been upheld by the court system, upheld by the Supreme Court. So we know that they do not violate the Constitution. So we know that those types of legislation can work and they should work. But even more, we need to focus on the underlying causes um, that produce uh, a society where the number of people who feel like that mass shooting is an attractive option um, goes up. What we need to do is, is can try to work on those factors and, and make, that, uh, make those numbers go down. Bottom line, I think what we need to do is to take a layered approach. Just like we had a layers of defense uh, in the military where we would have each layer would build on the other to create a hole that provides a much better defensive posture, I think we need to address the problem of mass shootings and, and to take a layered approach. Sensible gun legislation is one layer. Better physical security at schools is another layer. Addressing the underlying root causes that contribute to and drive the behavior of folks who choose to undertake mass shootings is another factor. And if we do all of those things at the same time, and each one of those things successfully, I think we have a better chance of decreasing the number of mass shootings that take place in the United States. We can't stop all of them, unfortunately. I wish we could. There's no magic wand we can wave that just make that happen. But I think if we take a layered approach, then we can do a much better job than we are now 
of uh, making sure that fewer of these things happen in the fewer in the future rather than more. So thanks for listening, and I hope everyone has a great day. 